Matthew 13 gives a lengthy record of some of the parables Christ taught. Jesus was in a house with his disciples, but a large crowd was forming. So he left the house, went to the shore, got in a boat, and proceeded to teach the crowds from the boat. He told them many parables that afternoon, like the parable of the sower. Not everything Jesus said that afternoon was easy to understand, though. And even his disciples wrestled with his sayings. In fact, afterward, Jesus left the crowds and he walked back into that same house. And his disciples followed him into the house. And once inside, they started to ask him questions. They wanted more information. They wanted an explanation of what he had said. They said to him, for example, explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. Matthew thirteen thirty six. Jesus then proceeded to teach them. He gave them all the insider information they were looking for. They were his true disciples, and he was very happy to answer their questions and just bring them into a fuller understanding of the truth. The Bible is clear and understandable, but it also is deep and complex. You should search it yourself and seek to understand it, but sometimes it's just helpful to be able to sit down, ask some questions, and get some direct answers on to, or as to what the Bible means. And it's really the spirit behind that episode that we're going to do what we're going to do this morning, namely some Q&A sermons. To this, uh, this morning, we're beginning a handful of these question and answer sermons. Do this periodically from time to time at this church, typically after finishing preaching through a book of the Bible and about to begin something new. And so just last Sunday, we finished the book of James, and pretty shortly here, we will start the book of Colossians. But I figured we're about due for a few of these Q&A sermons. And so here we are. Many of you over the past weeks submitted your Bible-related questions to me. And over the next couple of weeks, we're going to see how many we can answer. Try and get to as many as possible. Obviously, these questions are going to be a little all over the map. But I've done my best to kind of group them together to some threads, some themes, just for a little cohesiveness. That being said, we're going to just get into it and start going through your questions and give you some biblical answers. We're going to begin with three questions that are all joined by a basic theme of, they're all asking basically the interpretation of a a given verse of the Bible. Different verses, but nonetheless, let's look at these. So question number one, let's begin. In Luke chapter 7, verse 28, Jesus said, I say to you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And so this person is asking, does that contradict or just what does that mean? You can turn to Luke 7 if you want to follow along with this one. Luke chapter 7, the verse in question is verse 28. And at this point in Christ's ministry, John the Baptist, he's already been imprisoned. But after receiving some messengers from John, Jesus then turns to the crowds and he speaks to the crowds about John. It's at the end of this little section that Jesus says, the verse in question, verse 28, I say to you, among those born of women, there's no one greater than John. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. This certainly is no contradiction. A little bit of Bible study reveals what Jesus meant. He's actually teaching a very important lesson here about the kingdom Not by way of contradiction, but by way of contrast. And you just have to consider the context. You look back here in this chapter and you realize Jesus was taking up a defense of John. After John had been imprisoned, people were starting to disparage his ministry. 
that Christ was coming to John's own defense. He was affirming that John was a, a true man of God and a true prophet. Look back at verse 24. It says, when the messengers of John had left, he, Jesus, began to speak to the crowds about John. And Jesus says, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? Meaning, was John this weak and fickle figure like a little shivering child? No. He was firm. He was resolute. Verse 25, but what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Those who are splendidly clothed and live in luxury are found in royal palaces. Meaning, you know, was John living in the lap of luxury like a prosperity preacher? No, he, he was marked by austerity, self-denial. And so why did all of these Jews go out to the wilderness to see John? He says in verse 26, but what did you go out to see? Why did you go see John? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, the one and one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. Jesus affirms here that John was a true prophet. You know, since the close of the Old Testament with Malachi, the voice of God through the prophets had been silent for about 400 years. He had not spoken. But God was speaking again through John. He was a true prophet, a spokesman for God. But more than that, Jesus said he's more than a prophet, greater than a prophet. How so? Well, not only was John a prophet, but he himself was also the subject of prophecy. And Jesus then references Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, this prediction of before the Messiah, a forerunner, someone who come before and he will make ready and announce the way of the Lord. And, and Jesus says, that that's John. John is that forerunner. All of this helps explain what Jesus meant when he said in verse 28, among those born of women, there's no one greater than John. And simply put, of everyone born up to that point, no one was more significant than John or more important than John. His character was sterling, but more importantly, his, his mission was above all else. His calling was supreme. What made John greater than all the previous prophets was not his writings. He didn't write anything like Isaiah. It was not his duration in office. He ministered for actually a very short time. Rather, it was his role in announcing the actual coming of the Messiah. All of the Old Testament prophets were heralds of the kingdom and heralds of the Messiah. But like 1 Peter says, they longed to see the day when the Messiah would finally come, but they never did. None of them ever got to see the day, but John does. John is the greatest herald because he's directly announcing the coming of the King of Kings. So far, so good. That's not really a problem. I, I trust that makes sense to you. But the real question is, you know, what do we make then of the second half of verse 28? Where Jesus, he sets up a clear contrast. Where after saying John's the greatest, basically, he says, yet he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Meaning greater than John. Well, the context makes clear Jesus is not disparaging John. He's not talking down about John. He's not suggesting that John is not in the kingdom. He's been showing the greatness of John. But what's happening is Jesus is using the greatness of John 
to, by way of contrast, set up the, the, the greater greatness of the kingdom. That's what's happening. And to understand this, you need to know a little bit about this whole thing we call the kingdom of God. Let's talk about that for a second here. What is the kingdom of God? Could you define it if you had to, just in simple terms? Like, how would you define the kingdom of God? I'll give you the, the, the basic Sunday school answer, which is a pretty good answer. The kingdom of God, it's God's rule and reign over his creation. That's all it is. It's God's rule and reign over his creation. This world right now is rebellious and fallen. And for God's greater glory, he has allowed sin, Satan, and death to presently rule and reign over this creation. But God has a plan of judgment and redemption by which he's going to reestablish his total rule over this world. The kingdom will come, meaning the age of God's rule over the world. Now, you remember, both Jesus and John the Baptist preached, repent, for the kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, is at hand. It's near. The kingdom is near. In what sense was the kingdom of God near? Well, the kingdom was near in the nearness of the king. The king of the kingdom had come. Jesus came to advance God's plan of establishing his reign of righteousness on the earth. Indeed, we would say Jesus inaugurated the kingdom of God on earth through his death and resurrection. Because in his death and resurrection, Jesus conquered sin, Satan, and death. He overpowered their power and authority over the world. He, he broke open the gates to the kingdom so that people may enter in. And those who now enter by faith through Jesus are called the church. And what is the church? It's merely the expression of God's kingdom on earth. Where does God now rule and reign on earth? Well, in the church. This kingdom is not complete. There is still coming a future time when God's rule and reign will be extended over all the earth. Every knee will bow. There'll be no more rebellion. The whole earth will belong to the Lord. And so the fullness of the kingdom is still future and that awaits Christ's second coming. But we would say that Jesus inaugurated the kingdom rule of God on earth in his death and resurrection. Now, I want you to think about all this from John's perspective. John the Baptist's perspective. John the Baptist was the greatest Old Testament prophet and saint. That's what Jesus is saying. He got to witness the coming of the king. And John came right up to the threshold of the kingdom. But he never saw the gates actually opened. I'm not suggesting John is not in the kingdom. All Old Testament saints are ushered in after their death, of course. But while living, John was the greatest herald of the kingdom, but he only ever got to see it in shadow form. You see, John was living in the age of shadows, the time before the cross. Even John himself did not fully understand God's redemptive plan. This explains John's question back in Luke chapter 7. Look at verse 19. Earlier in the context, he's, he sends these, he's in jail, but he sends these messengers to Jesus and they're supposed to ask him, they're like, hey, are you the expected one or not? Meaning, are, are you really the Messiah or not? That John himself was struggling because Jesus has come now, but he's not doing what the Messiah is supposed to do. He's not ruling and reigning on earth 
like the Messiah is supposed to do. Like, where's the sword and the power and the throne? Where's the conquering? Isn't the Messiah supposed to shatter the nations with the rod of iron? Like, where's all that? Are you, are you really the one? But look, like all Old Testament prophets, John just didn't have the perspective and the revelation to see two comings of the Messiah. He didn't get the unfolding progressive nature of God's kingdom plan. He didn't know that the kingdom was meant to begin spiritually on earth and not physically. And so with this in mind, when Jesus says that the least person in the kingdom of God is greater than John, he means that any single person actually in the kingdom is in a better position than John. And without doubt, Jesus is talking about people who live after the cross. This really gets at the difference between new covenant and old covenant believers. The very least new covenant believer, the the Christian after the cross, has a better view of Christ and the kingdom than John did, who was the greatest Old Testament prophet. He's not saying John is excluded from the kingdom. It's just that during his life, John never got to see it from the inside. He didn't live to see the kingdom inaugurated in the death and resurrection of Christ. He was beheaded before that. He never got to behold in person the glory of God's plan of a crucified yet risen Messiah. He never got to see the, the expression of God's reign through the church. But any believer now has a better view of this just by virtue of living after the fact. John looked forward and all he could see were shadows, but any believer now looks backward and we get the full picture. Imagine you're in a theater and a drama is being played out on stage, but your back is to the stage and you're facing the rear wall of the theater. And all you can see are the shadows of the actors portrayed and cast on the rear wall. And so you're watching this thing unfold. You're kind of getting what's going on. You're able to understand it, but only in a limited sense. Because all you can see are the shadows of the actors. And that's like the Old Testament prophets. They understood and heralded God's kingdom and the Messiah, but only in shadow form. That's all that was revealed to them. And John himself, he had the greatest view of the shadows. He was the greatest herald of the Messiah in shadow form. But now I want you to think about the person in this theater with with the worst seat in the house. You know, like that the top, back, left, nosebleeds, maybe like you're blocked by partially by a column or something. Just like the worst seat in the house, but they're facing the stage. They're actually facing the stage. And so that person with the worst seat in the house, they still have a better view of the drama than John. They know the kingdom better than John. They're witnessing the drama acted out in person. They see not the shadows, but the substance. And this is what Jesus is saying. By contrast, any new covenant believer is greater than John in the sense of their privileged position in redemptive history. They can now look back and see just the full revealing of God's kingdom plan, that the glorious plan of the gospel in high definition, it's as clear as day. It it makes perfect sense. It's all been revealed now to us, the cross, the resurrection. And so any new covenant believer has a better view than John. 
Now, as a final thought, this truth has implications. This truth means that the the very least Christian has the ability to be a better herald than John. You have the privilege of the full picture. You know the full gospel. And so you are to be a witness. Every disciple is to be a witness of things you have seen. And you dare not remain silent about what you've seen in Scripture. And then now, like John, you must tell other people the way into the kingdom. But just get this. You now can show people the way to the kingdom with greater clarity than John, the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. It's a remarkable privilege. You can show the way to the kingdom with greater clarity than the greatest Old Testament prophet. And so do not waste that privilege. Question number two. We're going to be bouncing around, so just get used to it. Question number two. What does the Bible say about sin in reference to John chapter 5, verse 14, and the man healed at Bethesda? You can turn to John 5 if you like. What does the Bible say about sin in reference to John 5, 14, and the man healed at Bethesda? In John chapter 5, Jesus finds a man who had been paralyzed for 38 years by the pool of Bethesda. Jesus heals him, says, get up, pick up your pallet and walk. And he does. And Jesus later finds the man and and talks to him. In John 5, 14, Jesus says, behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse will happen to you. So this person is basically asking, what is the relationship between sin and sickness? Is Jesus suggesting that this man's paralysis was related to his sin? I'm going to try and answer this one pretty matter of fact, and that's because a couple years ago, I once preached three sermons on this very question. So we've kind of been there, but if you want to learn the long version, you can download the three sermons on our website. They're called When Sin Leads to Sickness, parts one, two, and three. It was October 2016. But I'm going to summarize. You know, first in general, all sickness is related to sin in a fundamental sense. That means if there were, if there were never sin in this world, there would never be disease or disaster or death. That God made the world good, free from all those things. It was only after man sinned and rebelled that God cursed man and he cursed the earth. All creation is subjected to futility and longs for redemption And so we can just say in an ultimate sense, all sickness is related to sin and all death is related to sin. But that's not really the question here. The question is more, you know, is it ever true that our specific sickness might be tied to a specific sin? And the answer from scripture is yes, sometimes. It's yes, sometimes. There are plenty of examples where God wields sickness and disease as a tool of judgment or discipline upon people. Think of uh, so many examples, but Elisha's servant Gehazi, who greedily kept that treasure for himself, and as a result, God struck him with leprosy. So that disease was clearly related to his sin. You also have 1 Corinthians 11, where, which says that many had become weak and sick, and some even died 
because they failed to judge the body rightly in taking the Lord's Supper. That God had disciplined some in the church with sickness for their sin. So scripture teaches there may be a connection between your sickness and your sin. And that does indeed appear to be the case in John chapter 5. We don't know any backstory to this paralyzed man. But Jesus surely implies that his condition was linked to his sin. Could this be a self-inflicted wound? You know, was this guy a bank robber and he broke his back during a robbery and became paralyzed? We don't know. But sin has consequences, eternal consequences, sometimes temporal consequences. And so what Jesus says to the man, just be taken at face value. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. Now, this truth must be balanced, though. You might think then that every time someone gets sick, they must have sinned to deserve it. Or every time something bad happens to someone, well, I, I guess they did something bad to deserve it. This is what the Jews came to believe. It's called retribution theology, but it is false. That is not true. The teaching of scripture is more balanced than that. The Bible teaches that Well, sometimes your sickness may be related to your sin, but other times it may not be related at all. There's not always a direct connection between your sickness and your sin. This is evident not from John 5, but from John chapter 9. So you can look at John 9 if you're you're following along. And there Jesus encountered a man who was blind from birth. John 9 verse 1. It says, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? And as you can see, Jesus or his, his Jewish disciples, they're just reflecting what every Jew basically believed. Retribution theology. This guy's born blind. Or he must have done something or his parents must have done something to deserve this. And that's why he's blind, right? If you get cancer or leprosy or diabetes, if you go deaf or blind, well, you or your parent must have done something really bad to deserve it, right? Well, sometimes, yes, but sometimes, no. And look at verse 3. Jesus answered, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. This verse goes way deeper into how sickness can be used for the glory of God. Again, you can get the sermons for the long version of all this. But clearly Jesus believes that not all sickness is due to personal sin. Neither this blind man nor his parents did anything wrong directly to merit being born blind. There are other examples. I'll leave it to you to look up, for example, Luke 13, 1 through 3, where Jesus again refutes this retribution theology. But you put, to, put together the teaching of scripture and sometimes our sickness may be linked to our sin, but other times it may not be linked at all. And in reality, we seldom know. People, most people, they desperately want the answer to the why question. Why did this happen to me? Why did I get cancer? Why did my loved one die? You are not going to get any personal revelation answering that question for you. 
not in this life at least. The Bible speaks of many different reasons why God allows sickness in this world, in this life. Which one of those reasons applies to you? You may never know. But you know what? It doesn't matter. Biblically, it doesn't matter at all. All that matters to God is how you respond to your sickness. What God cares about most is what he's revealed, which is, well, how you should respond. Wherever your sin came from, or rather, wherever your sickness came from, God cares about how you respond. And so what is the right response? Well, it obviously entails trusting God. You're going to run to him as your refuge and strength. You're going to depend on him for life and salvation. And the right response also involves examining self. I do not want you to fall into the trap where you're thinking every time something bad happens to you, you must have done something bad to deserve it. But at the same time, it is only a good thing to use every sickness as a little opportunity to examine self. Have I sinned? Is there some hidden sin in my life? Am I clinging to some rebellion against God? That's a good thing. If so, repent. But that's just, that's the purifying and sanctifying effect of sickness. It will make you pray more and I hope make you holier. That's a good thing. But ultimately, the right response is to turn to Christ. For he is God's answer to both sin and sickness. That only Christ can save your soul and heal your body eternally. Now, both our body and soul are perishing in this world. Eventually, you and me, we're all going to get sick and die. All of us. Whatever you're going through, though, that the right response is to turn to Christ by faith. He's the only one who can make you well. Physical healing may or may not come in this life. Like I said, we, we will all taste the sting of death. But in Christ, if you turn to Christ, you can always say, it is well with my soul. It is well with my soul. And in Christ, you can look forward to resurrection life forever. And so the response to these things is going to be, no matter where your sickness comes from, you may never be given eyes to know why you got that sickness. Now turn to Christ. He's the answer to, to all things. Let's move on now to question number three. Question three, a quick one. What does the Bible mean when it says, a Sabbath day's journey away in Acts chapter 1, verse 12. It's a quick one. You can turn to Acts 1 if you like. But what does the Bible mean when it says, quote, a Sabbath day's journey away in Acts chapter 1, verse 12? And a little background clears this up. And you recall the Old Testament command for Jews to observe the Sabbath day, to keep it a holy day of rest. They were to do no labor or commerce on that day, but to rest and remember the Lord. What about travel, though? You know, the Old Testament law does not actually prohibit travel on the Sabbath, but later rabbis misinterpreted Exodus 16, verse 29, and they took it to forbid all travel on the Sabbath. That's not what's in view in the context there, but nevertheless, that belief propagated down the ages, and so Jews came to believe that you cannot travel on the Sabbath. Now, of course, the rabbis made exception because they really wanted to travel on the Sabbath. They got things to do. And so they found a way to justify traveling up to 2,000 cubits on the Sabbath. A cubit, 18 inches, so 3,000 feet. 
You can travel up to 2,000 cubits on the Sabbath. They got this from Joshua chapter 3, verse 4. This was the farthest distance from the tabernacle to the outermost encampment in the wilderness period. And they reasoned that since those Jews were allowed to travel that distance on a Sabbath, well, they could too, 2,000 cubits. And so over time, it became an accepted custom or tradition that any devout Jew could not travel more than 2,000 cubits on the Sabbath. And so this distance just became known as a Sabbath day's journey, 2,000 cubits. Not surprisingly, later scribes and rabbis found loopholes to extend this distance. So later in their history, it was doubled to 4,000, later to 8,000 cubits. They really wanted to travel on the Sabbath. And none of this comes from the Bible, though. These are just the products of a man-made system of self-righteousness. But to answer this person's question, a Sabbath day's journey is used in Acts 112. It's simply a well-known convention of a distance of about 3,000 feet, three-fifths of a mile. And that's pretty much it. Now, speaking of the Sabbath, though, it was interesting. I got a pair of, well, related but unrelated Sabbath questions. So let's look at these now. Question number four. If Jesus told us to obey the Ten Commandments, why do we honor the first day of the week instead of the last? Why honor Sunday instead of the Sabbath? Basically, why Sunday? Why not Sabbath for Christians? It's a very common question, and it goes back to understanding the continuity and, and discontinuity between the Old and New Covenants. And try and boil this one down for you. You think about the law of Moses. Refers to the set of commands given by God through Moses to the Jewish people. 613 total. And they're regulating all aspects of life in the land for theocratic Israel. You get to the New Testament though. It's it's obvious things are different. Like some things have changed. It becomes evident that those living after Christ... They're no longer really under the law of Moses, meaning they don't seem to be bound by all the laws of Moses. You can't really argue with that fact in the New Testament. For example, circumcision is dropped as a requirement for believers. Passover observance is traded with the Lord's Supper. The sacrificial system is gone. The Levitical priesthood is gone. Temple worship is gone. Jesus taught that all foods are clean. So the dietary restrictions are gone. So much has changed. It's evident. And the same goes for the Sabbath. The early church did not observe the Sabbath, at least as found in the law of Moses. They still had a day of worship, but it became Sunday, the first day of the week. And that's because it commemorates the day of Christ's resurrection, Sunday. But Christians understood they were no longer bound by the commands of the law including the Sabbath command. The Apostle Paul confirms this in Colossians 2, 16 and 17. I'll just read that for you. Colossians 2, 16, he reminds them. He says, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So first, you just have to recognize that the the first Christians, they rightly realized that they were no longer under the law of Moses now that Christ had come. And I don't think too many Christians would argue against that fact. 
And clearly things changed after Christ. Many people still struggle though, defining exactly how things changed or why things changed. So look, technically we've answered the question, like, why don't we keep the Sabbath? Well, because we're not Israel. We're not under the law of Moses. We're the new covenant church. We're under Christ. And instead, we follow the pattern of the early church, which gathered for corporate worship on Sundays. So that's the answer. But I want to include a few more thoughts to help you understand really why this is the case. Why these changes took place biblically. Take a little further. Keep in mind the basic principle from Hebrews 7.12. And really all of Hebrews, but Hebrews 7.12 is huge. And he made the point that whenever there's a change in priesthood, whenever there's a change in covenant... There is a change in law. It necessitates a change in law. It's Hebrews 7, 12. And Christ has come. And with him came a new covenant. New priest, new covenant. And this has necessitated a change in law. The old covenant law of Moses was not abolished by Jesus. But it was fulfilled by Jesus. And therefore replaced. Jesus fulfilled the law's demands of perfect righteousness on our behalf, which we could never do. And the law really was meant to be like a tutor leading them to Christ. But now that Christ has come, things are different. God is no longer relating to the world through a theocratic agrarian nation in the Middle East. He's relating to the world through the church, which is the redeemed from all the nations headed by Christ. So, you should expect things to be different now. This does not mean we throw out the Old Testament or that we delete the law of Moses from the Bible. No, but we do relate to it differently. Like 2 Timothy 3.16 says, look, all scripture is inspired and still profitable. It's all profitable, but we're no longer under the jurisdiction of that law. So we're going to relate to it differently. The letter of the law is not binding on new covenant believers. That's the old covenant. We have a new covenant and a new law. We can still learn profitable principles from the law and the character of God, but the letter of the law is not binding on us. Now, in hearing all this, I don't think that we are now a lawless people. We're not under the law of Moses, but we're not lawless. Because with the coming of the new covenant came a new Law, which the New Testament calls the law of Christ. And this is likewise a standard of righteousness or right living. But don't think you've got to keep this law to be saved. And just the opposite, only those who are already saved by faith in Christ and and transformed by his grace, they will go on to keep this law just out of the new nature that they have. They they will delight to walk in the, the law of Christ. And this was always the promise of the new covenant, by the way, that God would save his people. He would give them a new heart, indwell them by the Holy Spirit, inscribe his law on their hearts, and then cause them to walk in his ways. At the core of the law of Christ stand two commands. It really be reduced to two commands. Love God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. Every other command in the New Testament can be related back to these two commands. And these two commands also explain the overlap with the Ten Commandments. Technically, we are not under the Ten Commandments. Those are part of the law of Moses. We're just not under that jurisdiction anymore. People hear this, they freak out and they think, does that mean like theft and murder and adultery are now okay? Well, no, obviously not. 
But why not? Not merely because they're forbidden by the law of Moses, but now because they are, well, likewise forbidden by the law of Christ. Those things are not loving to God. They're not loving to others. Therefore, they're still against God's law. But now, our new jurisdiction, the law of Christ, they're still prohibited. And fittingly, there are many places where the law of Moses and the law of Christ overlap. This is why nine of the Ten Commandments are repeated in the New Testament. Again, we're not technically under the jurisdiction of the Old Testament or the Old Covenant or the law of Moses. But they still represent God's standard of right living because they're found, likewise, in the law of Christ. Again, nine of the Ten Commandments are repeated in the New Testament. The one exception here is the Sabbath command. And this brings us back to our question. The Sabbath command is the only of the Ten Commandments that is not repeated in the New Testament as a command for believers. New Testament talks about the Sabbath, but never as a day of rest. The apostles and the first Christians understood this point. We're not bound by the old law. The old Sabbath command does not directly apply to us. Instead, Hebrews 4 teaches that our Sabbath rest is no longer found in any day of the week. It's found in our eternal salvation. Our heavenly salvation, that's what the Sabbath rest was always pointing to. Regarding a day of worship, though, we are right to follow the pattern of the early church and adopt Sunday as a day of gathering for this. This being the day of Christ's resurrection carries greater significance for us. We are the people of Christ. We're brought in under his new covenant. He's our priest. We're gathering to remember his death and resurrection. And so Sunday, Sunday it is. Now, we're not done. This really leads to an interesting related question, which someone unrelatedly asked. So it just kind of works perfectly. Question number five. This will be the last question we get to this morning, but you'll see how it it really ties in 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 God's providence. What does the Bible say about the church gathering on Saturday night or other days in place of the Lord's day on Sunday? You'll see how this dovetails perfectly to this whole discussion. What does the Bible say about the church gathering on Saturday night or other days in place of the Lord's day on Sunday? You know, what's kind of funny about this is I bet there are some churches out there, they meet on Saturday night for Sabbath reasons. They think they're observing the Sabbath. What's, uh, what's ironic about this is technically Sabbath was Friday sundown to Saturday sundown. So if they're meeting after sundown, they've, they've missed the Sabbath. They're not even on the Sabbath. <laughs> kind of funny. But at the same time, you know, most churches do not meet on Saturday nights for biblical reasons or Sabbath reasons, but just for pragmatic reasons. Maybe they desire an alternative to Sunday mornings so they don't have to compete with other churches for congregants. Maybe they want to attract a younger crowd who just, they're not waking up Sunday morning. Or maybe their building is maxed out with two Sunday services and the only way to accommodate growth is a third service on Saturday night. And so the question is, you know, is this okay? In short, I'm not personally a huge fan of Saturday night services. That's mostly because I disagree with most of the pragmatic reasons given for them. But at the same time, I cannot dogmatically oppose them. And that's because the Bible actually never commands us to gather on a Sunday. Never commanded. Nor is it forbidden for us to gather on other days of the week. So let's clarify a few things. 
First little point here, you need to understand the New Testament nowhere teaches or suggests that Sunday has become the Christian Sabbath. It may be controversial for some of you. Maybe you've never heard that before. But you study the New Testament, you'll not find a command, a verse, or a teaching suggesting that Sunday, that day of the week, is now our new Sabbath. It's not in the New Testament. Never is it suggested that Sunday is our new day of rest. Like the Old Testament, that was a day of rest. Like, oh, Sunday is our day of rest. Show me a verse. Some like to spiritualize the Old Testament Sabbath. They apply it to Sunday, and so it becomes our new day of rest. Typically, those people betray their true beliefs, though, when a guy at their church is a fireman. He's got to work on Sundays, but they don't rebuke him for sin. They have no problem with him and many other people working on Sundays. As long as you come to church, you're fine. Well, if it's really a day of rest, it would be sinning to work on Sundays. But you're not going to get that from the New Testament. Let me mention Hebrews 4 again. You can turn there if you want. Like I said, Hebrews is huge when it comes to these issues between Old Covenant and New Covenant. The church is the people of the New Covenant. You've got to get that straight. And Hebrews 4 is the one place where the New Testament does actually speak of our day of rest, the Sabbath. But not in the way you might think. Earlier in the chapter, the author mentions the promise of Entering God's promised rest. That rest, though, is no longer confined to a single day of the week. That rest is eternal. This rest was pictured in the Old Testament by the promised land. Remember that the age of shadows. And so the promised land, which has its own significance, and we believe in a future for Israel and their land. But nonetheless, the promised land was a picture for them of God's rest. And you remember the wilderness generation, he says early in the chapter, they never entered that rest because of unbelief. You only enter God's rest through belief. They perished because of unbelief. But that was just a picture, a shadow of things to come. And Joshua later, he brought the people into the land. But the author makes the point that Joshua did not give the people true rest. That's not the real rest God was always pointing to. And that rest came in Christ. He's our new and great high priest. He's the one who opened up the way to heaven and allows us to enter in by faith. That's what Hebrews 4 is all about. For example, look at verse 9. He says, So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest, Christ, has himself also rested from his works, As God did from his. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest. And for the sake of time, you keep reading this whole chapter on your own. But it's clearly talking about Christ in heaven. The the heavenly rest. The promise of, well, the kingdom like we talked before. And he goes on to say, you, you enter that rest by belief. And don't fall away to unbelief like the Jews did. But look, the ultimate rest for God's people is not found on a certain day of the week any longer. It's found every day because it's found eternally in Christ. And this rest is our heavenly salvation, which you enter in by faith. That's the point of Hebrews chapter 4. But this shows us that Sunday is not the replacement of our Sabbath rest. Our heavenly salvation is the replacement of the Sabbath rest. 
And we in Christ, we've already entered into God's rest. We are presently enjoying that rest via our salvation. In the future, though, we will be brought into the fullness of that rest with the completion of our salvation and the new heavens and the new earth. You recall John 4, 24, where Jesus clarified that true worship is from the heart. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth, which is to say you have to worship God for who he is and from the heart, from your spirit. That's the worship God wants, not just formalism, not just forms, days, places. No longer was worship to be fixed to a location like the temple, right? That's the point of John 4. Rather, worship now is where? Everywhere. Everywhere you are, worship should be. And likewise, no longer is God's worship and remembrance to be fixed to a day of the week like Sabbath or even Sunday. But which day should you worship and remember God? Every day, every time, every place. He's given you his spirit, right? So you have the spirit every day, every time, every place. You should walk by the spirit and worship him all the time. This is the, always the picture and the promise of new covenant salvation. And let me just say this. If the only time you think about God, remember God, and worship God is on Sunday mornings, you're probably a false Christian. Right? That, that's just dead religion. What is that? But new birth transforms you into a true worshiper. You have a new heart, God's law written on your heart, the Holy Spirit within. That should impact you, I'd say, every day. At least a little, if you're alive. You enter the rest of God's salvation, and you should worship him for that salvation and remember that salvation and live in light of that salvation every day. That's the picture. Now, that being said, I got to get back to this question. Why does the church gather on Sundays? Should the church gather corporately at all? Well, yeah, that's obvious from the New Testament. Why do we gather corporately? Well, to offer corporate worship of God. That's something we cannot do alone. We weren't saved alone. We were saved and then immediately placed into a body, the church, the body of Christ. And God is pleased when the body gathers in unity to worship him, really experiencing a foretaste of, of that heavenly rest and worship. I don't think I probably need to argue that the church should gather for corporate worship. But the question is, again, it's really which day? Sunday now or what about Saturday nights or Thursday or whatever? You know, why Sunday? Why is Sunday our primary day of gathering? It's true. Read the Bible yourself. It is never commanded in the New Testament for the church to gather on Sundays. We are never told to gather corporately on Sundays. And for that reason alone, you can't really say a church is doing wrong to gather on a Saturday night or Thursday or whenever. In fact, the first church after Pentecost, they met every single day for the uh, the apostles' teaching, breaking bread, fellowship, prayer. They were doing it daily. But pretty soon thereafter, the pattern did emerge that the first church started to meet weekly for their corporate gatherings on Sunday mornings. So real quick, let me just, you know, download to you the the picture of Sunday worship in the New Testament. What the Bible does say about it. The evidence that that became the day of meeting is clear. Sunday was, after all, the day the Lord Jesus rose from the dead. That's kind of a big deal. Makes Sunday kind of important for us. Sunday is also the day the Holy Spirit came upon the church, really started the church in Acts chapter 2, Pentecost. 
You've got 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 through 2. That was written very early on by Paul, and he calls the Corinthian church to set aside a, a collection of money every week on the first day of the week for a love offering for the poor saints in Jerusalem. Verse 1 makes clear that wasn't just for the Corinthian church, but all the churches. And it's evident that they gathered corporately on the first day of the week, Sunday. And so when they gathered, Paul instructed them to set aside an offering every week to help the poor saints in Jerusalem. But the point is that the churches were already accustomed to meeting weekly on Sundays. The same is clear in Acts 20 verse 7. Paul is in Troas for seven days and a full week, right? And of those days, which day did the church gather? It wasn't Sabbath. Verse 7 says, on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them. The pattern holds that the church gathered on the first day of the week. Sunday, Paul preached a message. They broke bread, which is a reference to their communion meal. It wasn't a special meeting. That was a regular meeting. The pattern is pretty consistent. The early church just very quickly started to meet weekly on Sunday mornings or Sundays. And finally, in Revelation 1.10, the apostle John refers to Sunday as the Lord's Day. A special day, the Lord's Day. And we can say the generation of Christians immediately after John, they all clearly understood this to mean that, well, Sunday had become the primary day of gathering for the church. And so the reason we make Sundays our primary day of gathering is really just due to the consistent example and precedent set by the apostles and the early church. And we stand on a very strong biblical model that we should gather for corporate worship on Sundays. It fits the pattern. But we have to refrain from being dogmatic about this because the Bible simply never commands or directly addresses the primary day of the church's gathering. And when you start making rules or laws or commands that the Bible doesn't make, you enter legalism. And we're not going to do that. We're not going to go down that road. So you should not forbid or judge other churches for meeting on Saturday nights. You can challenge their motives of pragmatism, depending on what they are. That's a separate issue altogether. Well, that'll bring us to the end of our time. But this last question really presents us with a fitting reminder and a takeaway. Just be reminded, God wants true worship from his people. And his people being transformed by his saving grace should be delighted to give him that worship. You know, I think the New Testament probably does not command any single day to be our new day of worship because the day just doesn't matter anymore, nor the time, nor the place. That God is spirit, you must worship him in spirit, meaning from your heart, your new heart. And the type of worship he wants, it's every day. It's every time, every place, your lips, your lives, personal holiness. He wants you to worship him all the time. Live in an atmosphere of worship. You're remembering God daily. You're thanking God daily. You're praying to God daily, praising him daily, obeying him daily. Does that reflect your life? If Christianity to you is a Sunday morning only experience, be warned. That sounds like dead religion to me. But living an act of faith seeks to worship and follow and just enjoy Christ 
every day. In a growing manner, we're weak in the flesh, but you should be, if you're alive, you should show life every day. So examine your heart on this issue and seek to grow in just the continual worship of our great God. Every day he gives you breath, just resolve to give it back to him. And just continual prayer and praise and worship for all that he's done for us in Christ. And it's the privilege that we have to know him, to know his new covenant, to have the spirit greater than John. We should thank for that. We should praise him for that every day. Let's do that now. Let's pray. Our great God in heaven, we, we do want to praise you with our lips this morning and with our very lives. Just live a life of praise for, for you, for who you are and what you have done for us in Christ. We are privileged. We have the full word before us, your whole testimony in our hands. In fact, several copies of the Bible we have. What a privilege that is. And, and therein we see the, the full revelation of your plan of redemption. Your kingdom plan to, to make a new people. The redeemed of all the nations who are united under the same flag. Jesus Christ as Lord. We confess that by faith. We enter into that kingdom, that people, and are transformed by it. May that be true for all of us here. That we are now living out the new life we've been given in Christ. And we're not staying silent about the privileged position we have. You just by your grace. We know it's by your grace. Our eyes have been opened to these truths. We are a privileged people, and may that just really affect the way we live. Our praise, our worship, our lives, our evangelism, our witness. And may we be a new people who worship you, not just on Sunday mornings, but every day, remembering our God, living in light of the gospel that has saved us. We long for that eternal rest, give rest to our souls right now that we have in Christ. But may we work uh, the works of God in the meantime to, to witness your name, to praise you with all that we have. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.